The first readings from Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends to his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Second reading is from the Gospel of John in chapter 10, starting at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. Great to be with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, whether we be far off or near, far away from you in the human swarm, in business, in earthly cares, in temporal joys, or far from all of this, forsaken, unappreciated, and in loneliness, please draw us entirely to yourself this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during Advent, we're spending four weeks looking at Isaiah chapter 40, and this is leading to a crescendo of hope, uh, leading to the fulfillment found in Jesus Christ. And we're discovering that the life of Jesus is not just a flat piece of music, it's a crescendo of hope, a movement to a high point, and not just any hope, it's an ultimate hope promised by God of old. And today, we're going to be looking at three verses um, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. And I want to consider three things. Why we need hope, what the voice of hope shouts, and how we can be embraced by hope. Well, why do we need hope? Last week, uh, we looked at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, and we noticed these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim her that her hard service has been completed. Now, what's the context of these words? Well, Justin reminded us last week that these words are most likely spoken at a time when Israel is in exile. They're under Babylonian rule. They're far away from home. Jerusalem is no longer their home. And so they're feeling lost and bereft of everything they love. 
and they're under the oppression of the Babylonians. And I think Psalm 137 captures just some of the pathos of what was taking place amongst the people of Israel. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept. We remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captives asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then, of course, if you're bereft and you're exiled, the reply is obvious. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? The people of Israel need the comfort of hope because there appears to be no hope. There doesn't appear to be any way out of their situation under the oppression of the Babylonians. Now, it's easy enough to uh, sense why the people of Israel are, have no hope. Uh, they're in exile under the Babylonians. And perhaps that's just an interesting part of history. Uh, some of you will be familiar with the Rest is History podcast. Uh, if my Facebook feed is anything to measure things, half the clergy of Sydney were there listening to that, and, and it's kind of an interesting podcast. It tells you about history, and maybe this moment in Isaiah is just a kind of, well, interesting moment in history, a kind of a factoid that um, Tom and Dominic could actually spend their time exploring, and we could learn a little bit more about that period of history. But I want to suggest to you this evening, this period of history actually has something to say to us, and these verses have something to say to us. I think this hopelessness, the sense of hopelessness that the people of Israel feel, is the kind of sense of, points to the hopelessness that we are in. Because in some ways, we are like exiles as well, who need hope. Paul, writing much later in the book of Ephesians, describes it this way as he talks about those who are following Christ. He says, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, without hope and God in the world. It's reminding us that we all need hope and that we are all without hope and without God. Like the people of Israel, we need hope for we are in a hopeless state we find ourselves without hope. Now, if that's not occurred to you previously, that might sound kind of insulting. Particularly since we live in a culture which keeps promoting the idea that our dreams can come true and that we are to believe in ourselves and to hope in ourselves and that somehow through self-empowerment we'll receive everything that we need and everything that we want. You just have to watch shows like Idol or America's Got Talent or watch Shrek. All those programs kind of promote this self-empowerment and this idea that we can make it and we can have hope in ourselves. Uh, Mia Friedman has put it like this. We've actually taken this so far that we've blurred the line between self-empowerment and self-objectification. Sorry. Long day. Um, 
We're making objects. We're, we're believing in ourselves so much that we actually end up worshipping ourselves and believing the hopes and dreams can be found in us. Uh, interestingly, I think what that's led to is a third of Australians feel lonely every week. And in fact, that loneliness is growing amongst young people. Remarkable, isn't it? As we cut ourselves off from each other, as we just believe in ourselves and our own self-empowerment, as we seek hope within ourselves, we're actually discovering it's a lonely place. The biblical story gives us a very different narrative, a very different frame to understand our world, a very different way of looking at the world. And if we have eyes to see, we'll see that there are thousands of reminders of the hopelessness that we live in, the hopelessness in our lives. Now, sometimes these, this hopelessness has a kind of meta-feel. This week, I spoke to a woman called Amy. Amy's grandparents were Jewish and had survived the Holocaust. The rest of the families associated were killed. Her family had moved to Australia, but the rest of her family are now in the Ukraine. So you can imagine what the conversation went like, can't you? I have this heritage of trauma through my grandparents. My relatives in the Ukraine are being bombed and my people in Israel are also facing trauma. Where's the hope? Now that's kind of a meta moment a big moment, a large moment on the world stage, if you like, and she's feeling it herself. But we don't also only face those meta moments of hopelessness. I, I think we all face micro moments of hopelessness. Let me give you some examples. I think I face a micro moment of hopelessness when I find tissues in the washing. I sort of act and behave in ways that actually don't befit someone with hope. Or this week, um, Jane and I will have been married for 39 years. Wonderful. I love her deeply, but I still find ways to express myself in hopelessness. And particularly this week, it was around the Christmas tree and getting the Christmas tree. I'm not going to go into detail. The problem is, every time we act and speak in ways that diminish ourselves or others, it's an act of hopelessness. We're acting out of hopelessness. Now, of course, you will be familiar that Christmas time is the perfect time to observe this. With all our family complexities, there are ample opportunities to act and speak without hope. So I want to ask you the question, what biblical resources do we have for dealing with this? How do we cope with this hopelessness? Well, let's look at the passage from Isaiah chapter 40 and begin at verse 9 and see what the voice of hope shouts as we consider this crescendo of hope in Isaiah 40. In verse 9, we basically see that the crescendo of hope, this voice of hope, shouts the gospel 
the good news. Now, I've used a version that uh, I think represents better what is being said here. It'll be a little bit different to the one in your sheets. But this is what it says. Get you up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with a shout, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, what I'm suggesting here is uh, in the other versions, it's suggesting the good news comes to Jerusalem. I'm suggesting here that the good news is actually going out of Jerusalem. And they are heralding the good news from the mountaintops. As one commentator has put it, Jerusalem herself is to be the herald. The towns of Judah are the ones to be told the good news. The good news is for them first, um, but the former exiles will share it quickly with the people still back in Palestine. Now that good news, the content of that good news is described for us in the following verses. But I want you to notice something. This good news is not to be contained in whispers. This good news is to be shouted confidently and fearlessly from the mountaintops. This hope is not something to be kept quiet. It's a hope that shouts. It's not like a whispered wish. So often our hopes are like whispered wishes. Uh, recently I was in a shop and there was a businesswoman talking to some of her colleagues and she was talking about setting up a Turkish bath uh, in the mountains, in the Blue Mountains. And they were talking about the risks involved and the risks that their family would be under in setting up this Turkish bath. And they were consoling her and supporting her. And in the end, in a whisper, she said, I hope the universe catches us. That's a whispered wish, a wish, a kind of hope that doesn't really have any reality to it. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. We're talking about a confident hope, a hope that is proclaimed from Jerusalem, a hope that is real and alive, and we'll see why it's real and alive. And the first thing that we notice is that it comes as good news, and the good news starts with these words. Behold your God. Here comes your God. The good news of hope doesn't begin by, with asking people in Israel to look at their circumstances. It doesn't begin with asking them to be self-empowered to try and deal with their circumstances. It asks the people of God to lift their eyes and to behold their God. To be captured by the vision of who he is to see that he is coming, to see his majesty and sovereignty, to let the field of vision be full with a picture of God, with God and who he is. Because, in fact, that's been the problem. They have been ignoring him. Their field of vision hasn't included God. And the first thing they are called to do is to behold your God. Now, I think... Uh, Jonathan Edwards captures some of this, albeit a little bit tangentially. Um, he says this, 
Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are shadows. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. I wonder if you can sense here the the picture he's painting. The sun fills the horizon. It fills everything. It fills your field of vision. Or if you're standing on the edge of a boat or on the edge of the ocean, the ocean fills, fills your field of vision. It's much bigger than anything else around you. And that's what Isaiah is saying to the people of God. Behold your God. Lift your eyes. Now, as the passage unfolds, it it helps us start to see what does that actually mean. And what we see are the arms of the sovereign Lord described in language of kingship. And so, first of all, we see in verse 10, the warrior king. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now you'll notice the second half of the verse talks about seeing his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. I think that's probably just highlighting the fact that the Lord is victorious and all-sufficient. His recompense is with him. He doesn't need anybody else's assistance. He has all the glory. He is sovereign. He can act as he wishes, unlike any other gods or any other earthly kings. And I think it adds emphasis to the first half of the verse, where it says, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with his mighty arm. The emphasis is on God's supreme authority and control over all things. It signifies that God governs and rules the world with great strength and power. God has the strength and the ability to deliver his people from exile, to bring about their redemption. There will be no enemy that is able to resist him. This is the good news that is to be shouted. It carries the good news that God is to be held and that he reigns over all, that he has the power to bring a redemption to his people by destroying enemies and bringing justice to the earth. He has more power than all the suns that exist. He has more might than all the oceans combined. He rules with a mighty arm. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now, in contrast, we have a very different picture of the other arm of God, the arm of the shepherd king. Notice these words. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm, and he carries them close to his heart, He gently leads those who have young. Now, automatically, you have a picture here of beautiful tenderness and intimacy and yet strength. Now, we know in the times that this was written that shepherds' entire wealth was with their sheep. 
The shepherd's life was based around the sheep. It was their pride and joy. It was their honour to look after the sheep. The shepherd's glory was found in looking after the sheep. But what this passage draws our attention to is the tenderness of the shepherd. The, word, the, the verse begins, he tends his flock like a shepherd. Literally, the idea is he feeds his flock. He provides for his flock. He makes sure his flock survives. But then the next three lines take us further into that intimacy. He gathers the lambs in his arm and he carries them close to his heart. And then notice he gently leads those that have young. Now that that sense of carrying close to your heart refers to a kind of a, a place in the tunic where shepherds often carried young lambs or where you could carry a little baby, for example. It's quite a beautiful, intimate spot where the shepherd is fully protecting the lamb. And you'll also notice that he's also protecting the mothers and the, and the ewes as well. The most vulnerable are being protected here. The one who, ones who are the, the most hopeless, the ones who can't protect themselves, are being brought close to the shepherd. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration here to kind of highlight just the intimacy and the beauty of this and it's been a long time since I've had kids oh I didn't actually have them but you know since we've had kids but now and let me just indulge indulge me for a moment I'm a grandfather and this is Millie or Millicent and it's it's just amazing isn't it for those of you who have grandkids climbs up onto my lap, wants to sit and be cradled in my arms close to my heart. And I'd do anything for them. I love them dearly. And that's the picture of a shepherd cradling the infant lambs in his arms. That's the picture of God and what he wants for us. Behold, we have a God who is sovereign over all, who's a king, who's a warrior, who can defeat the most challenging enemies, but he's also tender and compassionate, even towards those who are the most vulnerable and those who are without hope. He draws them to himself, like a shepherd cradling a lamb. And so we have this extraordinary picture in Isaiah of a God who Isaiah is calling his people to follow. Well, what are the implications for us? How might this good news help us deal with our macro and, mi- macro and micro moments of hopelessness? Well, what's fascinating is 13 chapters later, we see a glimpse of how this begins to unfold as the arm of God is revealed. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. 
like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then listen to the motive of the sheep again. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, as we hear that image of the sheep again, I'm also reminded of that passage in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. And so both Isaiah and John are pointing to the cross. It's like, in particular, Isaiah chapter 40 is transposed into a higher key on the cross where we see these arms nailed to a cross. The mighty warrior king has taken our pain, bore our suffering. He's defeated death and sin, the greatest enemy of all, which has exiled all of us under God's judgment. And having stood in our place to take that judgment, the victorious King Jesus embraces us to his heart with the love of a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That is good news. That is hope for the hopeless. So, brothers and sisters, I invite you to enter into those moments of hopelessness, those macro and those micro moments of hopelessness, and let the good news this good news, embrace you. Now, just to be really, really practical for a moment around this Christmas time, can I suggest this? When you feel like things are going south in your conversations, when you notice things are going south, why don't you be curious? Notice that you're tempted to act out of hopelessness. Notice the times that you want to rescue others when it's actually not really your responsibility to rescue them. Notice the times where you wish to withdraw because you don't want anything to do with that. Notice the times when you act and say things that do not treat yourself or others as those made in the image of God. Notice your own hopelessness Notice your anxieties and the anxieties of others and ask yourself this question. How might I enter here embraced by the good news of a cross, embraced by hope, embraced by the warrior and shepherd king who carries me close to his heart? How might I enter into these moments differently? And practice. See what it's like. Notice what God is doing in you and in others as you do that. Well, finally, and just very, very briefly, 
How can we be embraced by hope? Now, it's kind of a bit of a clumsy sentence because, well, actually, when you look at the text, one of the things that strikes you is that God is active. We're the ones without hope, but he's the ones drawing us to himself. He's the one doing the embracing. He's the one calling us to himself. He's the one doing the defending. And so, as we look at this sovereign king who brings us out of hopeless exile through his death and resurrection and embraces us like a loving shepherd, a shepherd who's prepared to lay down his life for us, he invites us simply to entrust ourselves to him and to fill our field of vision and to say, Behold my God. And I invite you to do that this evening. Amen.